this is not a he said, she said sort of thing. Like mm -hmm. there are four or five of your top executives who all say that, you know, you operated this scheme. They have evidence they're supplying. This is not a question of, of interpretation. Like they're going to argue that they've got them dead to rights. And every time they get a new person to flip a jury, which is ultimately who decides this is, is going to have a harder and harder time coming to the conclusion that like all of these people are lying. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, September 13th. Today, I'm joined by Teddy Schleifer to talk about Ryan Salem, the resident Republican at the disgraced crypto fund FTX, pleading guilty to illegally funneling money to GOP candidates. Teddy explains what this plea deal means and whether Salem will cooperate with the government's case against his old friend and colleague, FTX founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. And later, Eric Gardner swings by to chat with Ben about how AI could upend the historic antitrust suit against Google. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Happy Wednesday, everybody. It's been a few weeks since we've talked about Sam Bankman-Fried here. So who else better to join me today than Teddy Schleifer. How you doing, buddy? Good. Um, actually, in the Puck, in the Puck headquarters right now, there is a uh, life-size cutout of Sam Bankman-Fried. So, uh, if I am not good enough to talk about this with him, talk about this with, uh, we can just have his cutout hold hold the mic and not say anything for uh, fifteen minutes and call it a day. Well, his lawyers would love it if he didn't say anything to the media. It keeps <laughs> sure. getting him in trouble. How? Uh, how? By the way, how tall is the life-size cutout of Sam Bankman-Fried? I'll, yeah. I'll admit I haven't seen it. I've oh, only okay. seen the uh, I've only seen John's uh, or editor John Kelly's. Uh, I've seen it on John's Zoom. So, but I'll be in New York this week, and um, I'll do. A, I'll bring up the tape measure. And one one more question on this topic: Why is there a Sam Bankman free cut out in the Puck HQ? That is that is a great <laughs> question. Um, I think we like we like we we know our characters here in the uh, Puck universe, and. Uh, uh, there are a few others. I, I'm surprised you haven't seen them on. Uh, well, I think no, there's a, there's a I remember last November uh, when Cohan had his had his book party uh, about the history of GE. There was a mm -hmm. cardboard cutout of Jack Welch that Kate, everyone took pictures with. Katie and I like took right. pictures with it. And like, I don't know if it was life size because it was so little. But then again, I think uh -huh. I saw I think I saw Jack Welch one time in Palm Beach and he was. He was a little man, so maybe that maybe it was life size. I just couldn't tell. I have no a no sense of scale when it comes to these billionaires, whether they are crooked or uh, not crooked. So the reason I want to have you on, Teddy, is one of SBF's top lieutenants, Ryan Salem, pled guilty last week to uh, basically illegal political contributions uh, and a conspiracy to operate an unlicensed money transmitting business. Uh, sounds like that's mm -hmm. describing FTX. <laughs> so Salem was the resident Republican bro at FTX. What exactly is this guilty plea about? Right. So the uh, core crime here 
is a straw donor scheme, um, aka Peter, I give you fifty million bucks. You donate fifty million bucks to you know the DeSantis Super PAC. Uh, That's where and, I'm definitely uh, putting my money. Safe sure, bet. sure. Safe bet. Um, yeah, and the fifty million bucks does not really come from Peter Hamby. It came from Patty Schleifer, and then but your name's on it, and um, you know the, the the first transaction, me giving you the fifty million, is never recorded, and uh, that is a fraud uh, of the Federal Election Commission. So Salem, uh, right, was the conservative pass-through, or now he uh, acknowledges he was, uh, for Sam Bankman-Fried's political influence scheme. You know, SBF, as as we now know, now that we're several years into this uh, rise and fall, gave millions of dollars, both Democrats and Republicans, but he wanted to be sort of the center-left uh, you know, neo-lib. And there was another uh, FTX executive who was sort of a, the far left version of the FTX uh, influence operation. And then there was this guy, Ryan Salem, who was sort of a, you know, Berkshire's reared center-right, you know, Mitt Romney type, you know, at least I don't think he could even vote during when Mitt Romney was up for office, but, you know, he's a few years younger than I am, who was willing to basically funnel uh, any money to Republican politicians uh, as Sam required. You know, Ryan was very loyal to Sam. He he, he sort of sticks out in, in kind of the FTX universe that we all know to come and love um, because he's like, uh, this is very reductive. But I'm just going to say it like he was kind of like the cool kid of this group. Like he's kind of <laughs> good looking. You know, he uh, was dating, you know, around in the Bahamas and, you know, partied and and, you know, he was not somebody who stayed up late you know, playing card games or talking about effective altruism or eating, you know, vegan tacos. This was like a normal like dude, <laughs> but he was also he very spending all of his time writing about uh, polycules on Tumblr. Is that what you're yeah. saying? <laughs> sure. Uh, but, he's, <laughs> but I think the contradiction is that he was also very loyal to Sam. Um, and he is somebody who, um, when you talk to friends of his, um, as I have, you get, you get the sense that he would kind of do anything for him. So uh, he pled guilty uh, last Thursday to uh, partaking in this in this campaign finance scheme. And uh, in March, he'll be sentenced to uh, some years in jail. I'm reading a Reuters piece here. It says, as part of his plea deal, Salem agreed to forfeit more than $1.5 billion, though prosecutors will accept his turning over of $6 million, two Massachusetts properties, his interest in a company called East Rood Farm, and a 2021 Porsche to satisfy the judgment. Peter, the, those, those, those uh, two properties, by the way, uh, are uh, t- one of them is a, is a restaurant in Lenox, Massachusetts, where I now spend uh, a couple weeks a year because R- Ryan Salem is sort of the uh, the king of the uh, Berkshire's restaurant scene. He owns like seven or eight restaurants in town. Um, and huh. one of my favorite subplots to this, just as a point of personal privilege, has been like, how will the FTX collapse ricochet onto Lenox's restaurant scene? <laughs> uh, because the town is like extremely dependent on his success. So... Some good restaurants up there. That's so interesting. Why? Uh, why do you spend a lot of time in Lennox? I know this is my girlfriend. My girlfriend's family. My gotcha. my girlfriend's family uh, lives in Lennox now. So fascinating. So before getting into what this plea deal might mean for SBF's future and fate, are there any Republicans that we know of that got some of this dirty crypto money, and will they face any consequences for it? I think it's definitely fair to say um, that there has been less scrutiny on the Republicans that got FTX affiliated cash than there have been on the Democrats who got it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Republicans were obviously enjoying this, the, the schadenfreude of, of kind of one of the biggest donors in the left, you know, going down in flames last fall. And I, I pointed this out and not to 
not to quote my tweets on this podcast, but um, I tweeted like in like mid-November of last year, like, is anybody going to talk about Ryan Salem here? When right. you know you saw you know everyone from like Tom Cotton to Jim Jordan talking about SPF, like there hasn't really been that much scrutiny on it. And frankly, like there there are a lot of entities that have gotten money from him that uh, haven't said jack shit about what they're doing with it. You know, I think the reality is lots of Republican. I know this privately, so but lots of Republican outfits, um, you know, have set aside the money just like Democrats have. But frankly, the people in the media have kind of moved on, um, and mm-hmm. and the scrutiny that has befallen upon kind of progressive groups uh, has not been extended to conservative groups. And people have sort of forgotten about the fact that, you know, not just Ryan Salem, but also Sam Beckman fried donated a good amount of money to, to Republicans as well. So Salem also pled guilty to this one count of conspiracy to operate an unlicensed money transmitting business. Other people involved with FTX have also cut deals. Uh, we can assume several of them are cooperating. We know yep. several of them are cooperating. Does this mean that Ryan Salem will also be cooperating? And by extension, are the walls just closing in on SBF at this point? It's actually a good question um, because one peculiarity of this deal that, I, that I've learned that it's um, in my story this week up at Puck is that Ryan is actually planning to not cooperate during the actual trial. Huh. He is planning on not testifying as a witness, unlike uh, the other three FTX executives who have all said that they are going to be testifying or who are all expected to testify and hasn't been has not been said they are not testifying. And, you know, Carolyn Ellison, who is the uh, aforementioned uh, polycule on Tumblr uh, <laughs> aficionado or, or Nishad Singh or Gary Wang, two other FTX executives. Um, I think we can expect them all to testify at the trial, which for people who forgot is next month. Crazy to say that um, after writing about this for 10 or 11 months now. So, uh, you know, Ryan has pled guilty. Um, you know, he appeared in, in, in New York court last week. There is an indictment, which, you know, Ryan obviously agrees with because he pled mm-hmm. to it. So that can be used. Uh, and he's been cooperative, but he's not, he's playing on ple- taking the fifth and not uh, testifying from the stand. But to your broader point, look, I mean, obviously the walls already were closing in. Like, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a lawyer, but like, Clearly, he is much more likely to be convicted on some of these charges than not to be convicted on some of these charges. Like there are there are people now who are are wondering aloud, at least, like, could there be a last minute plea deal? That seems crazy to me, just given, you know, the the hard headedness of of the defendant and, you know, the desire to get a scalp um, from prosecutors. Like, I don't really know what sort of deal Sam would really take. Like, is it going to make a difference if he gets 30 years versus 40 years. But I just don't know what kind of about that. I just don't know what kind of deal would be offered to him. I mean, like he's the number one guy. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So I don't I don't think that there is really a deal on the table that that Sam would ever take. But, you know, with every new person to flip, I think it's reasonable to ask the question, you know, that, you know, what if, you know, Ryan Salem is also saying this, like you you basically are able to create this narrative now from from prosecutors where they're going to have be able to say credibly, you know, from open court that like, hey, you know, it's this is not a he said, she said sort of thing. Like mm-hmm. there are four or five of your top executives who all say that, you know, you operated this scheme and they have evidence they're supplying. Um, this is not like a question of, of interpretation. Like they're going to argue that they've got them dead to rights. And every time they get a new person to flip, you know, a jury, right, which is ultimately who decides this is, is going to have a harder and harder time coming to the conclusion that like all of these people are lying. Um, That seems less and less likely the more and more people they uh, flip. 
One more thing before this you go. I, I saw a headline the other day that Sam's lawyers tried to basically uh, request that he be released from federal jail because the wife and he's bit, by the way, he's being held in federal jail because he was on house arrest. And then he, the judge was like, dude, you're tampering with witnesses. Uh, you're going to jail until the trial. Um, mm-hmm. Did his lawyers actually request that he be taken out of jail because the Wi-Fi in there is bad? <laughs> oh, sure. Um, so basically, so, so Sam, since the middle of uh, last month has been, in the MDC, which is a kind of a notorious jail in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he obviously has a trial next month. And as part of the prep for that, uh, his lawyers have wanted him to have access to the internet. And there's been like, it's kind of comical, the 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 uh, amount that I now know about like Sam Beckman frieds laptop battery. But like, there's been, <laughs> there's been extensive negotiations in court about between the defense and prosecutors about what type of internet conditions Sam can have because defense reasonably wants their defendant, despite being in jail, to be able to prep for his case, you know, such as mock cross-examination, stuff uh-huh. like that. And uh, so there's, I forget where things exactly are right now, but they're trying to sr- strike some agreement where uh, he can be let out occasionally and meet with lawyers. There's also been like extensive negotiations over the types of food he can eat. Uh, SBF, uh, as I mentioned, and as I think we all know by this point is vegan. Can't imagine there's like, you know, some good uh, like stir fry tofu in uh, at the MDC. Um, he also has had issues with medication, what sort of medication he's able to get his hands on. So there's been a, a whole host of kind of minor disputes or maybe major disputes, depending on, on how you see it um, in terms of his the terms of his imprisonment. But um, one of those has had to do with can this guy get on the Internet without uh, him causing World War Three? <sighs> It's hard to tell. Teddy, thank you for your reporting and thank you for being our number one Lennox Mass correspondent. We love uh, we love to hear it. You bet. We come back. Eric Gardner is here to talk about AI and Google. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner to talk about a massive trial kicking off today, which is the antitrust case that the Justice Department has been building for a number of years against Google. The government says that Google has been abusing its power over search online to crush the competition. Uh, They do things like paying Apple billions of dollars that they're the default search on your iPhone. Government's not a fan of that. Eric, I have not been following this case as closely as you have. Talk to me about the basic arguments of the two parties here. What, what is the DOJ coming after Google for specifically, and, and how is Google resisting this? Right. Well, according to the uh, government's calculations, Google has a 90% share of generalized search. So you know, if you want to search on something, you go to the web, you click open your, your browser, and you're probably going to land on a Google page because it's made the default page of many web browsers and the like. And according to the government, Google has has gotten this by basically paying billions of dollars to Apple, to phone manufacturers, to the producers of, of browsers like Firefox. And they say that, that you know, this is illegitimate, that you can't pay to maintain your monopoly power over this. They, the government says that, you know, had Google not done this, there would be more competition out there. So it's not just about, you know, being 
or DuckDuckGo not being given a leg up. The government's saying basically that, that there could be all sorts of other search engines that popped up were it not for these agreements. And those search engines might have better privacy policies. They might, you know, give you better results and all that. So the government contends that this is, you know, pretty harmful for the marketplace. Yeah, I mean, I kind of understand that argument. And you can see how this would have huge impacts, not just on Google, but on how a lot of Silicon Valley tech companies function. I mean, I feel like the direction of so many tech companies over the years has been to move towards toward removing confusing choices. They, they, everything has been streamlined. There's a lot of behavioral psychology that goes into making it simple for you to click and make fewer decisions. Nobody actually wants to go and customize their web browser. They want to just, you know, hit the field in the iPhone and it works. You, you put in some search query and there it is in front of you. That sort of simplicity is in part what made the Apple ecosystem so much more appealing than Android, where there is a lot of personalization you can do. Eric, do you think there's anything to that as, as sort of a legal argument, or is that just a business case? Well, I think it's an interesting uh, argument to make, and there aren't too many monopolization uh, cases quite like this. Uh, this one has drawn a lot of comparisons to the to the Microsoft uh, case at the turn of the century. But l let me tell you, Google's position is that, you know, they have a superior product that, you know, if you look at those who are using Microsoft machines where Google is not the default, nevertheless, uh, those consumers go and they find Google anyway, and they, and they use Google, Google's web browser to, to make search queries. So, you know, why should they get punished for, for that, for having uh, a good product? That's at least uh, Google's position. Um, you know, Google also, you know, suggests that, that they're making lots of investments and perhaps their biggest point is that the government misunderstands the market. Yeah. That, you know, sure. If you look at generalized, uh, search, they, ha you know, have a, a huge share, but what happens really is, well, if I want to go shop, I go to Amazon. If I want, you know, travel, I might go to Expedia. Uh, if I want news, I might go to Twitter and that's where people search things. So, you know, in Google's estimation, they're competing against all these different websites, uh, especially when you consider their competition for ad dollars. Uh, it's not quite simple. And, uh, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say that there's a slam dunk uh, case for, for, the, um, for the government by any stretch of the imagination. It's interesting that Google is in part making the argument, of course, we dominate this market. We have a better product. Because one of the things that strikes me about this case is that Google's search product is actually worse than it's ever been. I mean, I think if you ask technologists, you ask people in the industry, or just go and use that product yourself, it really has degraded in quality so much over the last five or so years in particular. It's just chock full of ads. It, it, it's really almost unusable. I find myself going to Reddit or to Amazon or to a lot of sites directly instead of using Google search like I did 10 years ago. In part, that's interesting to me because if, if that's true, it sort of suggests that the DOJ is coming to this late, like maybe they should have brought this case five or 10 years ago. Because in fact, one of the arguments that Google is also putting forth, as you reported yesterday, is that there is more competition than ever. They're not going to make the argument that their search product sucks now and is now maybe going to start losing market share. But they are making the argument that artificial intelligence has really changed the game, that there are more upstarts than ever, that they were maybe caught a little bit flat-footed. Do you think there's anything to that argument that because there's all these AI companies that have suddenly surfaced trying to disrupt Google, that that weakens the government's case here? 
Yes and no. I mean, I, I definitely think that, that Google is going to point to artificial intelligence. I think the government's going to point to artificial intelligence. I think that's a, you know, a huge subject. It's a subtext for a lot of the, the issues, and it will be explicitly mentioned in court that this is where everything's going and that the judge's decision is going to have a huge impact on that market. And there's no denying the fact that, that AI is, is competition for search engines these days. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, a lot of the liability phase of this case is going to be the attention is going to be drawn to like what's come already. Um, it's not going to be, you know, where everything is headed. It's it's basically has Google maintained past tense a monopoly by doing illegitimate things. So in, in that regard, AI doesn't play as big a factor, but, uh, you know, it, it certainly looms over a, a lot of, of what's there. And I think that, you know, both sides are really going to push that button really hard because I think that you know the judge has got to recognize the significance of, of his his decision. Yeah, I mean, it's very fascinating to watch. Eric, what is the government potentially seeking in this case? Are, are they looking for damages? Are they looking to break up Google in some kind of way? Well, interestingly, there, there are two kinds of cases. And you know one kind of case, which is this kind of case, is called a case for equity where basically the the plaintiffs seek sort of restitution in the in the form of deterring future conduct so like an injunction or structural reform forced divestitures um, those are types of cases get heard just by the judge not by a, a jury and that's what's what's going on here interestingly the government has a separate case a separate antitrust case against Google that that is all about uh you know, uh, anti-competitive behavior in the ad tech space. And in that case, they're actually see seeking damages. And that one will go before, before a jury. But in this case, it, it's uh, you know basically a remedy that will deter uh, future bad behavior from Google. What that is exactly, we can't be so sure about it because what's going to happen right now is for the next few months, the parties are going to go before the judge and debate Google's liability. And if the and the judge finds that that Google has indeed violated antitrust law. Then it moves to a remedy phase, and the parties will talk about you know what kind of remedy is appropriate in this case. But because that is so far off, you know neither side has really you know discussed that too extensively at this point. So we can only kind of guess at what uh, the remedy might be. Uh, I don't think it will go so far as trying to break up Google, but I do think that there will be significant, you know, restraints placed on Google, and uh, it will come as at a time when Google is really trying to rush into the AI market. So I think that's a uh, you know quite significant. I think that you know a lot of people when they look back at the Microsoft case, they say you know. Uh, Microsoft kind of, you know, defended itself well and ultimately prevailed, but, you know, they kind of fell behind during that case. Uh, social media took off and they were, were quite, kind of flat-footed. You know, this is going to have a, a similar material effect on Google, I think, and I think everyone involved is really conscious of, of you know, how, how this is going to play a part in our technological future. Yeah, it's interesting that there's just so much that we don't know about how this will play out. I mean, one of the biggest losers could be Apple. Right now, they are making billions and billions of dollars a year from Google to have Google search as the default browser. If a judge comes back and says that you can't pay Apple money to be the default anymore, I wonder if Apple just keeps using that anyway. And then 
and just has to go without that revenue stream. I mean, because yeah, to, to Google's credit, it still probably is the best product out there. I mean, I haven't played around with Bing in a while, but who's to say that customers are going to suddenly stop using Google without all of these hidden incentives? Yeah, I think there'll be a, a big test if there's no, you know, kind of agreements in place for, for you know, what people use. If that happens, I could see a company like Apple not incorporating any search engine into into its space, or maybe incorporating, say, ChatGPT uh, in place of, of Google. Uh, I think that would be a kind of interesting response to Google going by the wayside here. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see. Uh, Eric, trial starts today. You'll be following that closely, and uh, we look forward to having you back to talk about it all. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.